Coming to you live from the basement of an abandoned house in the middle of a field, it's the Derek Izzy Show. Making history his story, Derek Izzy. You're listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Welcome back for a new episode. First, I'd like to remind you, all current sponsors are listed on DerekIzzy.com. While we do many shows, sponsors come and go, but the current list of everyone who supports the show is on DerekIzzy.com. So visit DerekIzzy.com for that list of sponsors, and you will see BetOnline.ag. Now, as a listener to The Derek Izzy Show, if you set up an account on BetOnline.ag using that link, you have to use that link that's on DerekIzzy.com. You will get 50% matching funds on your first deposit. This episode releases in the month of March. So just in time for March Madness, you can make a bet on who you think will win the tournament. Now, a $100 bet on any of the teams at the time that this podcast was recorded. If you pick the winner with a $100 bet, you will win a minimum of $900. Depending on which team you choose, the odds go up and down. I've seen a $100 bet pay as much as $5,000. I didn't go the whole way down the list, but that was what I saw during my initial rundown of the odds. So take advantage of that. You got college basketball all throughout the month of March. Lots of bets that can be made. And because you are a supporter of the show, you get 50% matching funds on your initial deposit. What that means is if you set up your account with $200, bet online will give you $100 free so you will have $300 to play with. You get that special extra funding just by being a listener to the Derek Izzy show. So, for today's show, I've got a few things to talk about. Today's show we will go through the topic. We'll talk a little bit about the year in review, where I go over some of the results of the downloads that have been taking place across previous years and the top episodes. I'll talk about the topic of today's podcast and then play clips from a video I found online related to the topic of today's podcast. Now, every year we do this recap with the most downloaded shows of all time, as well as the most downloaded shows of the year. And it looks like the top three of 2019. In third place, we have Curse of the Conqueror, which was released January 1st, 2019. Second place, The Real Lone Ranger, released in June of 2019. And the most listened to, most listened to episode released in 2019 was When Thomas Flew, released in March of 2019. Give you a quick summary 
all the downloads for the entire history of the show, the single most downloaded episode is the very first one, A New Kind of Family. That was released on January 1st, 2014. If you have not heard it, check it out. It's what started the Derek Izzy Show on the map. Our most downloaded month of 2019 ended up to be December. Generally, we see cyclical downloads. October, November, December tend to be the heaviest downloaded months. And that trend continued through 2019. And now, the topic of today's podcast. September 11th, 2001. Planes crashed into the World Trade Center, bringing the towers down to the ground. It was a terrible experience for America with thousands of lives lost, tens of thousands of lives, maybe more, affected by this tragedy. But before the towers came down, the towers were built, built by some people that have stories being told about them where they lacked an emotion we refer to as fear. Who built the World Trade Centers? Generally, when we see other people, we tend to graft our emotions onto them. For example, if we go into the ocean, one might have a fear of drowning and not want to swim too far out. And drowning is a legitimate fear, but not everyone fears drowning. Some of us have a natural curiosity that drives us beyond that fear. A fear of heights seems to be a natural fear. If you're constructing a skyscraper, a fear of heights would obviously prevent you from doing your job. As a child, you may have feared things or you may have not feared things. And when you grow into adulthood, sometimes your fears and perspectives change. This group of people that today's podcast is about, were said to have no fear of heights. The group of people that I am speaking of is the Mohawk tribe. Mohawks were an integral part of the construction of many of the skyscrapers in New York City, including the World Trade Center. They developed a reputation working on skyscrapers. They showed almost no fear, scaling beams hundreds of feet in the air, which could have easily resulted in a tragic fall to their death. I'm reminded of a quote where someone said, referring to the Mohawk tribe, people think they are fearless and have supernatural powers. That's not true. Enough of them have died to prove they don't have superpowers. Almost everyone has stories of family members who have been injured or killed. It's the ability to control that fear. And yes, it's high-paying, but there's more to it. It's become a rite of passage. They are very proud of that heritage. Al Carroll, a historian, professor at Northern Virginia Community College, he says, Several friends of mine are native construction workers, though not Mohawks. Believe me, they have the same fears as anyone else. One of them finally quit after a bad fall. But I never saw them discourage people believing they had no fear. It gave them bragging rights and may even have helped them get jobs. Something similar happened to me in the Army. 
officers and sergeants assumed I was a better soldier than I was and cut me slack when I messed up. Bigger and tougher soldiers than me backed down from fights because they assumed I was a natural fighter. Jane Leval, library science minor, said, You can't prove that the entire tribe of Mohawks are unafraid of heights. We do know that since the 1950s or so, they've taught their children to show no fear of heights and treated men who showed fear of heights as cowards and failures as Mohawks. That's not a genetic lack of fear. It's a cultural behavior. It's not common in other tribes either. A member of the Comanche tribe has admitted that he's scared to death of heights. He says, however, I know many Mohawks have worked and continue to work in construction because it pays well at a time when Native people face a great deal of prejudice in hiring and pay. Lack of fear had nothing to do with it as far as I know, unless we are discussing fear of poverty. The Mohawk tribe, largely located in the northeastern part of North America, bordering between Canada and New York, they inhabit primarily the area around Lake Ontario and the St. Lawrence River one of five original members of the Iroquois League. The Mohawks were known as the Keepers of the Eastern Door. They were known as the tribe that guarded the Iroquois Confederation against invaders from the East. Back in early history, the Mohawks encountered European settlers. They began to trade with the European settlers, and several of them became wealthy with their trades. It is believed that in the 16th century, they defeated the St. Lawrence Iroquois Indians and took over the St. Lawrence River Valley where they hunted and cultivated maize fields along the Mohawk River. While the Mohawk tribe didn't seem to spread very far across North America, they were very successful in what they did in their area. In the early 1600s, an epidemic of smallpox would come through the Mohawk tribe. This drastically reduced their population. However, the tribe would live on. After the Americans won the Revolutionary War, most of the Mohawk tribe migrated to Canada. Most of the Mohawks decided that Canada was the place for them, where British royalty was able to give them land and compensation. The Mohawks who traveled to New York in the 1900s, would be part of the fearless construction workers that I'm about to tell you about, who built many buildings, including the World Trade Center and the Empire State Building. This piece that I'm going to read to you is not my own original work. It comes from Native Village, from a website called whitewolfpack.com. This piece, I believe, best tells the story of the fearless Mohawks. New York, one bright September day. Mohawk iron workers were startled. The first workers came from the Kanawaki Reservation near Montreal, where in 1886 the Canadian Pacific Railroad planned to construct a bridge across the St. Lawrence River. The bridge would land on reservation property. In exchange for using tribal land, the Railroad and Dominion Bridge Company agreed to employ Mohawks during construction. They had only planned for the Indians to unload supplies, but that did not satisfy the Mohawks. 
Members of the tribe would go out onto the bridge during construction every chance they got, according to a 1949 New Yorker article. It was quite impossible to keep them off, said a Dominion official, who said the Indians showed no fear of heights. They would climb up onto the spans and walk around up there as cool and collected as the toughest of our riveters, most of whom at that period were old sailing shipmen, especially picked for their experience in working aloft. Impressive, perhaps? But Kanawaki ironworker Don Angus says his ancestors were just teenagers who dared each other to climb the 150-foot structure and walk the iron. Company workers tried chasing them off, but the Mohawks kept climbing and getting in their way. The Indians were especially interested in riveting, one of the most dangerous and highest-paid jobs in construction. Few men wanted to do it. Fewer could do it well. Sometimes there were too few riveters to meet construction demand, so Dominion Bridge trained a few of the persistent Mohawks. Twelve young men, enough for three riveting gangs, were trained. It turned out that putting riveting tools in their hands was like putting ham with eggs, the Dominion official declared. In other words, they were natural-born bridgemen. After the Canadian Pacific Bridge was completed, the young Mohawk ironworkers worked on the Sioux Bridge, which spanned the St. Mary's River and connected Salt St. Marie, Ontario, and Salt St. Marie, Michigan. Each riveting gang brought a Kanawaki apprentice to learn the trade on the job. When the first apprentice was trained, a new one came up from the reservation. By 1907, more than 70 skilled structural Kanawaki ironworkers were working on bridges. Then tragedy struck. American structural engineer Theodore Cooper had designed the Quebec Bridge, a truss bridge extending 3,220 feet across the St. Lawrence River above Quebec City. The Quebec Bridge Company was strapped for cash and accepted Cooper's design because it specified far less steel than most bridges of that size. As the bridge grew, Disturbing bends in the structure were explained away by Cooper and the builders. As damage caused off-site before the beams were set in place, no one wanted to admit that the expensive bridge seemed unable to bear its own weight. On August 29, 1907, the bridge collapsed, killing 75 men. 33 were Mohawk, about half of the tribe's high steel workers. But the tragedy did not turn Mohawks away from ironworking. It made high steel much more interesting to them, said an elderly Mohawk man. It made them take pride in themselves that they could do such dangerous work. After the disaster, they all wanted to go into high steel. Less than 10 years later, 587 of the 651 men in the tribe now belong to the Structural Steel Union. But the Mohawk women wanted to prevent so many of their men from dying in one accident. They insisted the men split into smaller groups and work on a variety of building projects. That's when the Mohawk ironworkers boomed out, tribal slang for scattering away from home to find steelwork. Mohawks had worked in New York City as early as 1901, but in the 1920s, they came in large numbers. They worked in a tight-knit four-man gangs, during the massive building boom, then for Depression-area public works. 
and later, during post-World War II prosperity. While they still came from Kahnawake, they also came from other reservations in upstate New York. Mohawk high steel men worked on virtually every big construction project in New York City. The Empire State Building, the RCA Building, the Daily News Building, the Bank of Manhattan Building, the Chrysler Building, the United Nations, and Madison Square Garden. They continued building bridges, including the George Washington Bridge, the Triborough Bridge, the Henry Hudson Bridge, the Hell's Gate Bridge, the Bronx-Whitestone Bridge, and more. During the first half of the 20th century, construction of steel structures required three types of work crews, raising gangs, fitting up gangs, and riveting gangs. The raising gangs used cranes to lift the steel pieces, set them in place, and loosely joining them with temporary bolts. The fitting up gang tightened the pieces, ensured that they were plumb, and inserted more temporary bolts. The four-man riveting gangs is where the Mohawks excelled. Because of the dangerous nature of the job, riveters preferred to work with partners they trusted. For Mohawks, this meant relatives and fellow tribesmen. Though ironworking technology has improved, 35 to 50 ironworkers still die on the job each year. 75% of these deaths are from falls. The man being interviewed during this article, Dick Otto, his grandfather died in a fatal fall. His dad died while driving home from a construction site. Many graves of the fallen steelworkers at Kahnawake are marked by crosses made of steel grinders. But the pay continues to draw in Mohawks. Iron workers now earn about $35 an hour plus benefits. In 1927, a federal court ruled that the Mohawks could pass freely between Canada and the U.S. since their territory had included portions of both nations. Since the drive from New York City to Kahnawake took almost 12 hours, many families decided to move to Brooklyn instead. By 1960, around 800 Mohawks lived there. A Mohawk steelworker conclave had sprung up near 4th Avenue and Atlantic Avenue, with grocery stores stocking their favorite Onan-Stowe cornmeal and churches offering services in their native language. But just 10 years later, few Mohawks remained. The new Adirondack Northway cut the drive time between New York and Kahnawake in half. Along with a growing pride in Indian culture and rising crime in New York City, most Mohawk ironworkers decided it was time to go home. Today, most high-steel Mohawks live in the city during the week and drive home to Kahnawake every weekend. But work has slowed since the World Trade Center towers collapsed. More builders are using reinforced concrete. It goes up faster, requires less height for the same number of floors, and is easier to modify during construction, as well as more resistant to heat. On the other hand, steel is much stronger than concrete, and steel-framed buildings are easier to modify for successive tenants. Because of that, many experts say that steel structures will never completely disappear. That suits the Mohawks, who have made high steel a tribal tradition. But why would people with deep traditions centered in the earth build skyscrapers in a city high above it? 
Anthropologists, construction companies, and even the Mohawks have debated why the tribesmen became skywalkers and why they remain high steel workers today. An official at the Dominion Bridge Company, which trained the first Mohawk iron workers in 1886, claimed they had no fear of heights. He even compared them to the sure-footed mountain goats. Some have said that the Indian tradition of walking one foot in front of the other on narrow logs over rivers suited them for walking the thin grinders of a bridge or skyscraper. But the assumption of natural balance and agility is probably fictional. Evidence of this is that Mohawks don't die in lower numbers than other ironworkers. It's about the same. Anthropologist Morris Freelich suggests a cultural lure for ironworking. He compares high steel Mohawks to warriors who risked death and returned with booty. Others suggest that the risky work gave tribesmen a chance to test and display their courage. While many Mohawk ironworkers are proud of doing dangerous and important jobs, they dispute the idea that they're not afraid of heights. Kanawaki ironworker Don Angus says Mohawks simply have more respect for heights. You've got to watch it up there. On the other hand, some historians and Mohawks cite the tribe's ancient tradition of building longhouses as proof that building is in their blood. It's a hand-me-down trade, and it's tradition, says Angus. My grandfather and his grandfather worked on iron. Another iron worker, Mike Swamp, agrees. My father was an iron worker. My son is an iron worker. It's a family tradition. Mike Delisle, the Grand Chief of the Kanawaki, he also comes from a family of iron workers and did some himself before returning to the reserve. He keeps blueprints of the World Trade Center in his basement. His father's wrenches hang on the walls. Young people are taking more jobs in the thriving tobacco industry on the reserve rather than apprentice as iron workers, he says. Each year, there are about 10 new Mohawk iron workers out of the 100 new recruits at New York's local. I would hope that more of our young men and women, if they choose to, it's a very hard trade, would go back to it and become more integrated to it. Because I think we've lost some of that work ethic over the past two, if not three decades. In Kahnawake, they say ironwork built the town, and most... Hope it will continue to do so for years to come. For the Mohawk people, whether it's a genetic lack of fear of heights, being more aware and in tune with the dangers, or whether it's just proving how brave you are to the rest of the world, the Mohawk tribe will forever be known as the builders of Manhattan, for they are largely responsible for many of the skyscrapers in New York City. Because now you know the rest of the story. Thank you for listening to the Derek Izzy Show. Before I leave, I'm going to leave you with a little interview that I pulled from a news site to give you more of an insight as to the current state of the Mohawk tribe. During this interview, they speak to several members of the Mohawk tribe and how they are educating their children in their own community, as well as preparing them for the potential of leaving the reservation and going out into the world.
Thank you for listening to The Derek Izzy Show. Please check out our sponsors. And before this video plays, take some time to write a review on iTunes. It'll only take you, you know, 15 seconds to write and submit. We appreciate that. Five-star reviews go a long way in getting the show noticed and delivering the show to more ears. It only takes a few seconds. Share the show with your friends. The feed is broadcasted on Facebook as well. The Derek Izzy Show Facebook group. Just click share. Share it to your timeline. Share it to your friend's timeline. Together we will educate this world. And now here's that interview I was talking about. November is National Native American Heritage Month. As it comes to a close, we have an intimate look at New York's Mohawk tribe and its fight to restore and maintain its language and culture for the next generation and beyond. NewsHour Weekend Special Correspondent Jenna Flanagan has our story. The language gives us our identity. It teaches us the culture. It teaches us how to be. It teaches us how to be grateful. And without that, who are we? That's Elvira Sargent, an elder member of the Aquasanse Mohawk Nation, which lies at the northern border of New York State. The Mohawk are working hard to not only maintain their language, but ensure it has a future with its language immersion school. The Aquasanse Freedom School was founded in 1979 after decades of Mohawk children being forcibly removed from their families and native lands to attend boarding schools run by priests, where English was mandatory and the Mohawk language forbidden, effectively putting up a barrier between the people and their culture. Freedom School Level 4 teacher Dohone Alakte, or as he's known by his English name, Levi Hearn, explains the long-term cultural effect. Most of the families in this community um, aren't traditional because of um, what had happened with boarding schools and different types of assimilation with um, like the Jesuits, even in the 1600s, 1700s. Elvira says she remembers her family members struggling with the separation. My sister actually went to a residential school with my uncle, and they would be there all year, come home if once a year. But what I know with that is that they were not allowed to speak the language. They were punished. My sister doesn't know the culture at all. She still knows the language. She gets stuck. So it has had a lasting impact. There's maybe people my age and maybe a little older. Um, we didn't have that nurturing nurturing from our parents because they didn't know how to nurture us or show us love. We knew they loved us, but, oh, God. <laughs> um, um, but it was hard for them to show us the boarding school separations left a lasting impact on the family. However, Elvira was too young to be taken to boarding school, so she learned to speak Mohawk at home. That's all I heard growing up. But then eventually even that part got lost. And is that same natural way that guides the Freedom School. We actually start at the age of one, where they can go into our languageness, because a long time ago, this was their first language. Not all parents can speak the language, so they're not hearing it until they enter school. And the focus is on developing conversational skills over compulsory. 
I think they really should try to learn it with another speaker, with an elder. I'm afraid with it being in a classroom all the time that it's going to become a classroom language. And I don't want to see that happen. It's just before 8 a.m. at the Aqua Sansei Freedom School, and the kids are already getting dropped off for the day. The school encompasses a small campus of three buildings, but it's not structured like an American public school. The kids aren't regulated by grade, but rather their Mohawk language ability level. So a child at level two isn't necessarily a second grader, but rather a kid whose conversational skills are still developing. And that child can be any age. My name is Gassanagohe. Can you say it? Gassanagohe? Yep, Gassanagohe. Clearly, I am a newcomer to the language. But Gassanagohe is not only proficient, she's the level eight language teacher and breaks down Mohawk pronunciation in a way my English-only brain can process it. Her... And this is, comes from the word gasana, which means a name. And this gohe is um, a journey, she who retrieves names. That is so amazing that that's your name given what you teach. <laughs> and that's one of the tenets of the Mohawk way or culture. Every individual has their own name. Just one that's unique to themselves. This is gay. As she continues explaining the phonetics to me, she shares how modern-day speakers make the ancient language work in present day. So our language is descriptive. So the way we've adapted to all these new words um, is just to describe what is going on. How would you then describe what a journalist does? Like if I were to describe myself in the Mohawk language, how would, what, what, how would I call myself? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think. Maybe Yegaladus. Yegaladus? She tells stories. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Wait, how do I spell that? Yegaladus. I could spell that for you on the board. Oh, please do. This ye is pronoun for her. And this doom is the, the telling of, and this is habitual. So she is a teller. She is a storyteller. I absolutely love that. (laughs) (laughs) Working with longhouse traditions, the Aqua Sansei Freedom School has its own set of standards and requirements for teachers. They aren't looking for traditional American certificates or degrees, but rather a membership within the nation, fluency in the Mohawk culture and language, and above all, a passion for imparting those traditions onto the next generation. Throughout the school, the kids are encouraged to help one another in their language development. And in some classrooms, absolutely no English is spoken at all. So to further my meager Mohawk language skills, I turn to some of the school's most enthusiastic teachers, the seven and eight-year-olds in level two. Sego, what does that mean? Hi. Hi, Sego, is that how you say it? Hi. Ona. Ona? Ona? or as she's known by her English name, Tara Skitters, is the school's office manager. She handles admissions, budgeting, hiring, and ensuring the school meets its overall mission. And part of that is creating a familial atmosphere for the kids. So it's a very small percentage of people that come here. The families that want their kids here, a lot of them are traditional who, you know, follow the longhouse and the longhouse traditions. I think our overall, like, values are more the concentration, respect, and taking care of the earth. 
and being kind to one another. Even though the Freedom School has less than 100 kids enrolled, the Aquasunse Mohawk community is 16,000 strong, and the reservation overlaps the U.S.-Canadian border. So kids who live on the New York side also have friends and family in the Ontario and Quebec provinces. The Freedom School has students from both sides of the border, but according to Level 4 teacher Dohone Alakde, that's our border, not theirs. When they're here, they talk about being on the American or Canadian side because we ourselves don't feel um, as we're a part of the American or Canadian government. We feel that we're a sovereign nation still. Tara says one of the biggest worries that parents have is if all this Mohawk immersion will limit their child's ability to learn English and matriculate into one of the nearby public high schools. The reality is English is everywhere. They're going to learn it, but once they leave here, where are they going to learn the Mohawk language? In all, Tara says the mission of the Aquasanse Freedom School is to ensure the survival of the Mohawk culture and language. You know, people think that um, an Indian is a certain way or that we all are the same and we're not. There's so many different nations, different clothes, different cultures, different songs, everything is different and you know we have to work really hard to maintain those things. There's so little of us you know like compared to other populations but we're here, we're doing it, we're gonna keep doing it, we're not going nowhere. <laughs> we have kids who are learning all this stuff and they're going to carry it on and that's we're just doing our thing (laughs) good day Thank you.